Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We say at Investopedia, and I say it every day, even at market record highs where we are today and where we've been for weeks, that the best day to start investing was yesterday. The second best day is today. That doesn't mean you're going to go in and you're going to double your money in a year. Nobody should expect that to happen, although it did happen this year. That doesn't happen every year. But you have to be invested. And that doesn't mean you have to buy the favorites or load up on the tech stocks that everybody's talking about. You can build a reasonable diversified portfolio buying an index fund or buying ETFs in certain sectors that you believe in, whether that's utilities or technology or e-commerce or whatever it is, diversify and dollar cost average your way in a little bit every week, a little bit every month. You're never going to pick the top. You're never going to pick the bottom. But if you stay in long term, history has shown, you'll get returns that are pretty decent and better than you're going to get anywhere else. Here with Caleb Silver, editor-in-chief of Investopedia, on why so little you've learned about investing is making sense right now. Do stay with us. This show airs on NPR One, Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Joining me from New York is Caleb Silver, editor-in-chief of Investopedia. He was formerly the editor of Business News at CNN, very well-traveled person previously at, at Bloomberg back in the day. Sir, how are you? I am good, and it's always good to be with you. It was great seeing you in the RVA a couple of months ago as well. Yes, we did convince you to come south of uh, south of the line here as you guys toured the eastern seaboard. And I'd love to see you again and have you in studio after this pandemic passes. But, sir, as we're in September, and I think back to these surreal three, four, five months, where do I even start? Why don't I just throw a, a Rorschacher inkblot out at you? Tesla. What does Tesla tell us? Tesla is now worth ungodly amounts. It's worth more than all the automakers combined. It has not been that consistently profitable in about its 15 years of its, ex its existence. And yet, amid a pandemic, amid record food bank lines and people about to fall off of a, a foreclosure cliff, as they call it, this company is worth a half a trillion dollars. Tesla is operating in its own galaxy, which is perfect for Elon Musk, who wants to explore other galaxies. But it has this fervent support from investors that have been with it for years and suffered enormous drawdowns, plus a lot of new retail investors that have been jumping into the market in the past six months and just love that stock. And they are... They, they are sticking with it through thick and thin, so much so that Tesla was able to do a four-for-one split, and then it just announced a new offering of securities uh, to raise even more money. So the believers are there, and the stock is on, literally on a completely different galaxy than planet Earth. But I'm sure if there were cocktail parties and, and luncheons going on right now, everybody would be talking about the parallels to 1999, right when it was growth at any price and P.E. didn't matter. And the darlings were AOL and Yahoo and at home and uh, tech plays and Cisco. And they're saying a trillion. Why is a trillion a limit when you step back and you look at Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google? What is it about tech and big tech that has everybody so fetishizing when, again, you're talking about the other side of the line is uh, record food stamp usage, record hunger, unemployment at highs, people not knowing when they're going to be able to resume any sort of normalcy. This, this is a fascination with the companies that have dominated the economy since the pandemic began, and there seems to be no end in sight for how high investors want to bid them. They are perme permeating every aspect of our life in some form or another. The difference between 1999 and the internet tech bubble and 2020's craziness is that you can actually see Tesla cars on the road. You couldn't see pets.com anywhere except in e-commerce land, and that didn't last very long, and a lot of companies like it. So there are some tangible things. I mean, Amazon, as you know, is not just an e-commerce company. It's one of the biggest cloud computing companies out there. So you drive across America like I just did, you see a lot of Amazon trucks on the road, you see a lot of Amazon warehouses on the side of the road, and you see these other big data storage warehouses that you don't know what's happening inside them. That's our data, and Amazon controls about half of that in the cloud. So these companies have a big grip on us in a huge way, and there are some that, that don't, uh, but that are still being valued very highly by investors. But these are the leaders, the fangman stocks, we like to call them, Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, Google, um, Apple, uh, Amazon, uh, Nvidia, right? And and we and we know that these companies have been dominating since this pandemic struck, and investors are sticking with them, which is driving the entire stock market higher with it. 
Caleb, I understand that tech is essential right now. We're all at home. My kids right now, as I record this, are on Zoom school. Talking about Zoom, the stock in 52 weeks has gone from $60 to $478. It's worth $120 billion. Having said that, in an economic crisis historically, when you talk about recession, when you talk about falling off a kind of ledge like we have since March, people historically used to gravitate toward defensive plays, uh, grocery companies, utilities, dividend-paying companies. I mean, it, it seems like a very different impulse right now that they're going to these super high, richly valued, growth-at-any-price tech stocks instead. Yeah, that's where the momentum is. And as we say in this business, a trend in motion stays in motion until something knocks it off. And something eventually will. These companies, the valuations eventually will have to revert somewhat to the mean, or maybe not. I mean, these companies that I just mentioned are already 30% of the entire S&P 500 in terms of market value. One day, will they be 50%? Could we ever end up in a situation where where we have five to seven companies that are worth half the entire S&P 500? I would say, I would have said never in our lifetime, but so many things have changed just in the past six months, Robin, that it's hard to even put those past investing principles and theories and rules to use because things just don't make sense right now. It is fair to say, though, that uh, as as a part of the broader United States stock market, we haven't seen tech this overrepresented, this disproportionately represented since the turn of the century. Yeah, that's true. But if you do go back in history, you will see other industries like the oil and gas industry dominating the index like it did in the 70s and 80s with the Exxons of the world and the Texacos of the world. You had that. Then you had IBM Big Blue, right, in the 80s, the era of the PC. Um, and now we're seeing it, obviously, with these companies that have just completely changed the way we work and live from home because we have had to work and live from home. You mentioned Zoom. Obviously, everybody's using it. Um, but look at other companies like DocuSign. It's found its moment. Even a Pella time, which had stumbled very badly with some poor marketing moves and some uh, you know, social media issues, is having its moment because it is the, exactly the type of company that will win in this stay-at-home environment for those folks that can actually afford to put one in their basement. So my understanding, reading Investopedia, is that the United States stock market capitalization, when, here you have the, the Dow Jones Industrial Average approaching 30,000 amid this pandemic uh, and, and, and still in the throes of this recession. You guys note that the United States total stock market capitalization at $37 trillion represents 190% of United States gross domestic product. Un unpack that for me. Is that outlandish? It's crazy. That's the highest we've seen maybe, maybe ever in years because you know, equity stocks, investors are like water. They need a place They need a place to put that money. Money needs a place to go. And with interest rates at or near zero and the Federal Reserve saying, we're going to keep them here for quite a while, not just another year or two, but for several years, where are you getting yield if you're an investor? You're finding it in the stock market. Maybe you found a little bit in gold, but you can't put all your, all your assets in gold. So the stock market's been the only place for growth. And even though people are sort of hating the rally as it goes up, those people that have been invested and stayed invested have done very well in this recovery. On the flip side, those folks that were not invested and do not have disposable income or savings are doing very poorly. So the dislocation is complete right now, and it's only going to get worse because the investing class is doing fabulously and the economy is in a shambles. It is incredible to look at the Bloomberg headline this morning. American food banks are being overwhelmed by the worst crisis ever. Hunger is surging in the heart of the breadbasket, showing just how dire the problem has become during the pandemic. Talk about the disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street. And by the way, I don't even know what Wall Street is anymore. It's a kind of a psychographic term. A lot of these lower Manhattan, the old J.P. Morgans and, and Lehman Brothers of the world that have since all gone really virtual or moved to the burbs or their uh, their partners are, are quarantining now in Connecticut and in upstate New York. Uh, but it's certainly a, a divergence. And we've seen that, as you guys have written, by a, a, you know, a Federal Reserve that has telegraphed it's printing money left and right, and it will back companies in ways that it, it hasn't in its 100-plus year history. Robin, the, the Federal Reserve is buying bonds and bond ETFs. If I would have told you that a couple of years ago, you would have kicked me out of the RVA it's unbelievable, but that is supporting capital markets right now. And capital markets need to be supported. Otherwise, there will be a liquidity freeze like there was in 2008 and 2009. And that was pretty devastating. That said, the, the relief and the stimulus, which is really uh, badly needed by millions of people that have lost their jobs or were frontline workers and had their hours reduced, is very acute right now. We don't see any progress there. 
But we do see all of this momentum in the capital markets and an asset bubble and what we call a melt up, you know, the opposite of a meltdown. It's melting up because it's got nowhere to go but up. As we say, there is no alternative for a lot of investors but the stock market. And they keep pushing the same 15 to 20 stocks higher and higher, which is dragging all the indexes with it. Hmm. I am fascinated, Caleb, by Investopedia's anxiety index. You'd say it's well above neutral right now at about 116. It's this proprietary reading indicating a very high level of anxiety. I mean, what are the inputs that go in? Uh, what does it tell us? I mean, you've plotted it 2015 to present, and I'm looking at the chart across the 2016 election, tariffs on China, impeachment hearings, and it's almost off the charts right now. Right. So the Investopedia Anxiety Index measures the volume of traffic to certain key terms that we associate with anxiety around three different areas, the markets, the global economy, and personal finances. And right now, the anxiety is very high, in particular, in the personal finance area. The market anxiety and the economic anxiety is not as high as it was in March and April, where it was screaming like a two-year-old in a toy store when it was time to leave. But the personal finance anxiety is very palpable, and we, we know that because we're watching the volume of search to key terms like bankruptcy, like foreclosure, like forbearance, um, like, uh, how do I, uh, personal bankruptcy, how do I get out of it? What are the different types of bankruptcy? So we know that our users and our readers, and there are 24 million of them around the world, are searching these terms because they are trying to solve a problem. And that shows you that people are anxious about what's happening to them on the real economy, the one that they live around, the one that they, they deal with every day. Meanwhile, the capital market uh, part of the anxiety index is doing just fine because stocks have recovered and then some. I have a question for our listeners, Caleb, and it's kind of, you know, breaking this down for maybe a person who isn't a stock jockey or following the markets daily. What it, the Federal Reserve has been criticized in the past because it has blunt instruments, blunt tools of kind of lowering interest rates to uh, to support the economy, to juice the economy and hiking interest rates to maybe stave off inflation. It kind of has this dual mandate of full employment and, and low inflation. What does uh, swelling asset prices and buying bonds do? I mean, surely it makes companies and shareholders and retirees a little more relaxed, but how does it induce hiring? You said there are 13 million unemployed Americans right now. You said that the CDC, as you note, is prohibiting tenant evictions until the end of the year to stop the spread of the virus. Where, where is there kind of this ice bridge between the two? In supporting the capital market, which is what the Federal Reserve has been doing, it is making sure we don't have any bank failures like we did in 2008 and 2009. We don't have this freeze where banks won't loan to one another because they doubt each other's creditworthiness. We don't have this freeze where people can't get a mortgage. Mortgages are on fire right now because the rates are so low. So there is movement in the capital markets and between banks. You have to have that. When that freezes up, Things like, like Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns start to fail. When you have those failures, as you know, those, those fall very heavy. As Jimmy Cliff would say, the harder they come, the harder they fall. Those fall very hard, and they can take down an entire financial system and take years to recover from. So in supporting the capital markets and making sure there's liquidity, there is this sort of movement there that allows companies to expand, companies to go to the debt market and borrow money. That's been happening like crazy right now, including Tesla. Um, so there is this actual money is available and it's super cheap. You would hope that m companies use that money that they're borrowing to expand to hire workers or to hire workers back that they may have laid off at the beginning of this crisis. That's the hope. The concern is that they've been doing just fine without them so far. The demand hasn't been there, but they've been doing just fine so far. A lot of stocks, not just the tech stocks, are at record highs. Are they going to need as many employees when this is over? And, you know, the early signs are no, because we're starting to see big layoffs in other industries. So here's the other thing. The question is, if you are getting this uh, more than a signal from the Fed, it's kind of exceeded what they used to call moral hazard, where the Fed is telling you it has your back, go ahead and take risks. You've seen evidence that companies have, creditworthy companies and even junky companies have used the opportunity to issue debt uh, and they're free to buy back stock with that debt. It's not like they're issuing debt to raise money to go and, and fire up assembly lines and hire workers. No, they're taking advantage of these ultra-low interest rates and borrowing rates to add to their to their balance sheets to strengthen themselves because either they fear another downturn or they're trying to repair broken balance sheets that fell apart before or during this crisis. So the money's there for them to do it, but money, you know, you you would want to see them, as I said, hire people back with that and create jobs. 
Otherwise, we're going to have 10% unemployment for years to come, and 10% unemployment doesn't affect everybody equally. That's the lower-income folks, especially uh, in racial groups that are the frontline workers, the minimum wage workers, supporting families on a single income sometimes. They're the ones that are going to feel this the most, while the working class and the, the investing class has really done quite well through this because they have access to capital, they own their homes, and they've been invested in the stock market. You know, and adjacent to this, Caleb, is is uh, the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, effectively saying, I have my pedal to the metal. Like, I'm on full speed here, full stimulus, and telling you largely that we're going to stay somewhat like this for upwards of five years, that it's on you guys, Capitol Hill, to, to you know, summon up some uh, bipartisanship and push through more emergency tax stimulus. Yeah, it's funny that the Fed is leading this charge because basically the Fed led a lot of the charge in, in the last financial crisis, but they've realized that they're probably the only the only uh, political group that can get anything done, even though they're apolitical on Capitol Hill. As we know, the stimulus, the next round of stimulus is stuck in Neverland, and uh, Democrats and Republicans are trillions of dollars apart on it. And P.S., we're very getting very close to an election, so nobody's going to make a move here. The Fed is doing what it can and putting the onus on Congress and putting the onus on Treasury to do more. Unfortunately, we're not seeing any movement there, but they have done what they can and more. Mm. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Caleb Silver. He is a veteran business journalist, now editor-in-chief of Investopedia, which is a part of the Dot Dash family of investing and financial education sites. He previously worked as head of business news at CNN. He was executive producer of CNN Money. And if I recall correctly, you even produced The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer. I was a privileged to be a senior producer on that show for the launch, and that happened uh, right around Hurricane Katrina. So I was there for a very interesting mm. time at CNN and had a great 10-year run there. Mm. I do see another headline today from the Wall Street Journal, and it's something that you guys are unpacking on Investopedia. Uh, U.S. government debt is on track to exceed the size of the American economy uh, for the year ending September 30th. That's a milestone we haven't seen since World War II. And so the Congressional Budget Office is, is in noting this, is putting that the United States is in the um, kind of embarrassing company of a handful of nations with debt loads exceed their economies, including Italy, Greece, and Japan. Uh, why aren't we being punished for that? You would think that uh, they used to call them bond vigilantes. They would come out and punish uh, uh, a, a country's uh, currency and a country's debt for, for monetary or fiscal profligacy. Well, part of the reason is that we may be one of the cleanest, dirty shirts in the hamper, and that other countries, as you just mentioned, also have enormous debt loads. But you, you mentioned the World War II stat. We haven't had it this high since, uh, since World War II. Well, we're in kind of a war right now against the, the virus and the economic destruction that it has brought with it. So nobody is really blinking an eye on the spending. And if you say, well, we shouldn't keep spending and we shouldn't enact more stimulus because our federal debt levels as a percentage of GDP are getting too high, I, I don't even think that matters anymore. But years ago, you and I would would never have had this conversation because it was unheard of. It was, it was uh, you know, offensive to even think of having debt this high. And we had presidential administrations that made the made it their job to bring it down. But right now, we're in spend-spend mode, and our children will hate us for this, but we have to do it. Indeed, uh, the Wall Street Journal article notices by the end of June, total debt had swelled to $21 trillion from about just under $18 trillion at the end of March, a 16% increase just over three months, according to the Treasury Department. And yes, it was a free three months that could have been an absolute free fall. There was uh, $2.7 trillion in spending since March that, that Uncle Sam approved for testing and vaccine research, aid for hospitals, economic relief for businesses, household and, and state and local government aid. Where you are in New York, effectively, is, is Mario Cuomo and uh, Mayor de Blasio are, are not Mario Cuomo, Governor. You just dated yourself. Governor. I dated myself. It does feel like we're not saying Ford to the city drop dead, but you know where you are right now, and you guys are writing about this. Is it certainly feels like we've we've felt this before, where a city is desperately reaching out to uh, the Beltway for a sort of lifeline, or else they'd have to have unthinkable cuts in public service, uh, uh, the, the subway spending, Metro North. It would kind of make it unlivable. Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna start to see many cities. Uh, singing that same tune because basically they're not getting the tax revenue they need. They're also not getting a lot of the other revenue, the, the bridge and tunnel revenue, uh, the subway revenue in New York. Um, so 
states and cities are, are desperate right now, and we don't have that robust spending like we used to, like we're used to, especially in this town. Restaurants are operating, those that are still around, at 30% capacity, and that's not going to grow much until we're allowed to have indoor dining. But who's going out to indoor dining until we have a vaccine? So cities are very crunched right now. New York, obviously, with a huge economy, is feeling it, but you're going to see it almost in every big city around the country. Tell me about what you guys uh, uh, do on New York One, which I used to watch on the trusty, what was it, Time Warner Cable in New York uh, with Annika Pergamon and everybody. You have a New York City Recovery Index right, so that you, you read out with them. Explain that to me. Uh, New York One, now Spectrum, now part of the Charter family. But we approach New York One because we love looking at economic data and analyzing it and trying to make, tell stories from it. We wanted to track the recovery of New York City from the pandemic by measuring a few key indicators. Those indicators include new COVID hospitalizations, unemployment, restaurant reservations as seen through OpenTable, small, new small business applications, uh, and we're starting to look at real estate prices for both uh, rent uh, and for purchase. And we're, and we're put all those indicators together and we score them, we weight them, and we score them to show where we are in the recovery based on where we were back in February before the pandemic began. So we're tracking those on a weekly basis, looking at all this data that comes in from the city and from other sources, uh, and we're putting it together to actually score where we are, and we're about 30% of the way back six plus months into the pandemic and supposedly into the recovery. So New York has a long way to go. But we update this every week. We put an article out on our side and on New York One, and I appear on New York One, uh, their, their morning show with Pat Kiernan and Annika Pergament, uh, two of the great New York City journalists. And we talk about where we are. And I think it's just a good way to, for, for viewers and, and readers to understand what are the moving parts that impact the, the New York City economy? We also measure um, subway swipes, you know, how many people are using the public transportation system, because that obviously shows economic activity, but it also translates into tax revenue for the city. So, I, I, you know, the old social compact, and I love New York. I lived there for 12 years. I was an Upper West Sider. Uh, the social compact in it is that you're there for the density, density and uh, making sacrifices in other part of your life. But now density has kind of become the, the, the fear factor, right? You, you go into Midtown, you go into Rockefeller Center. None of these restaurants, which there are a tremendous number of service workers, as you guys notice uh, in, your, in your research, there are nobody in offices there to buy the $15 you know, salads that people toss for you. Uh, very few people taking the subway. You have concerns about density uh, on the Metro North. Uh, there, there seems to be a tipping point where it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and enough people move out and those jobs are out and people unwilling to pay the high tax burden that you could very clearly have an ongoing fiscal crisis. Oh, no doubt about it. The many of the great reasons for living in this city and raising a family are just not available to New Yorkers right now. We always talk about our great theater, our museums, our art exhibits, great parks to hang out in, great cafes and restaurants. Well, a lot of that is very limited right now. It's limited everywhere, but you feel it in New York City because it's right in your face. You don't have to drive to it. You take a subway two stops, you take a walk, and you can see what's happening out there. So that's definitely a factor. And there is a, a, a louder and louder drumbeat about people leaving the city. Exodus from Manhattan as families move out to their country homes and you know, in the uh, Berkshires or, or out to the Hamptons. And there is some of that happening without a doubt. And we see it in the property listings, especially for the high-end apartments in Manhattan and the Upper West and the Upper East Side. So that's definitely happening to a certain degree. That said, when you look around the other boroughs, Bronx and, the, and Queens, um, for notably, you don't see a lot of movement there. Those are working class folks that are rooted here and going to stay here uh, through thick or thin. You are seeing some movement you know, with folks moving into Brooklyn, into areas where there, where there became some apartment availability because folks did move out. But I think people make a lot more of the fact that people are leaving the city in droves than is actually happening just because it makes for good headlines. And, and you, as you mentioned, people are always questioning the value proposition of living in this dense city. So when you look at this potentially systemically, if New York City is a case study for us of uh, people suddenly, not just saying that this might be another three, four months of not having your workers go into the office, but what if this is working so well from a productivity and social distancing perspective that we can kind of abandon all of those millions and millions of square feet of, of, of office space and uh, kind of rebate the money to ourselves? If you extrapolate this out to the broader economy, is there a chance for a commercial real estate crisis that would then 
emanate out the way you saw residential real estate take down the economy in 2008? Robin, it's hard to believe that that won't happen in some fashion because there is so much commercial real estate in New York and they were developing like there was no tomorrow over the last few years. If you look at the west side of Manhattan, uh, down near the Hudson Yards area, um, if you look down in the Battery Park City area, there has been development like crazy. Now, New York always seems to recover. We've gone through many crises. You've been here for several of them. We always seem to bounce back. But there just seems to be so much excess, especially in buildings that were populated by the banks, by the publishers, by companies that required workers to come in and are now realizing they may not need that many people in the office or an office of that size at all. So that's definitely going to bleed into commercial real estate, which could bleed down to other parts of the economy. I would definitely expect that to happen. Will it affect, uh, you know, residential real estate? New York is a, is a tricky town for that. As soon as you think prices are going to fall off a cliff and you're going to get the deal of a century on the brownstone you've been dreaming about your whole life, prices come back up and somebody comes in with all cash and, and trumps you. So that's kind of the pattern in New York City, and I don't think that will change too much. But what about property developers across the country? I mean, you talk to commercial landlords right now, either mall owners, strip mall owners, warehouses are doing well on balance. But uh, there are the, 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 the reality right now is to get a fraction of the rents that are due to you because of the extraordinary economic shutdown. You didn't have a choice. I mean, everybody from the top restaurants to the mom and pop nail salons alike are negotiating a haircut in rent. How is this not going to result in a national systemic crisis is my question for you. Commercial real estate, the likes of which we haven't seen maybe since the late 80s. I don't think we can avoid it. I think it's happening, and I've just driven across country and seen it with my own eyes. You see strip malls that are empty and bare. You see many that were in development stage that are that don't have the stores that they were planning to have, those anchor tenants that bring people in. That's just not happening as you drive across the country, which feels tired, and it feels overgrown in those areas in particular. So I can't imagine we'll avoid that. The question is, Will that spill over like we like it happened with the mortgage crisis in 2008 and 2009 to the broader economy? I think you'll see it in some collateralized loan obligations and other areas of the market. You'll definitely feel it. Will it in add to uh, the the length of time we may be in this recession and contribute to a double dip? Certainly a possibility, but that all depends on how soon we see a vaccine. This is an incredible stat by way of Barron's. Apple, uh, the most valuable company in the country, and the world, maybe, uh, next to Saudi Aramco, its market value is now as big as the Standard & Poor's 500 Index's energy, utilities, and materials sectors combined. So a market value of $2.3 trillion is about 8% of the S&P 500. Uh, it's pretty incredible. It's, it's a you know $29 million total market capitalization for the S&P 500. My question for you is, you know, suppose you're a person out there who believes the gospel of Jack Bogle and Vanguard like I do, that you can't beat the markets. You could just be the market. Even if you are the market right now and you're indexing passively, you have no choice but to be, you know, in your words, 30% in, in tech stocks because they've just grown so much faster than the rest of the S&P. Yeah, just by being an index fund investor or an ETF investor, you're owning the biggest stocks in the world because guess what? Microsoft and Apple are the two most widely held stocks in all index funds and in most ETFs. And if you've been holding those, you've been doing just fine. As I say, they drag them up and they bring them down because they're so heavily weighted and their market caps have grown so much of investors as investors have piled money into them that they are the market. And look at Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, right? One of the great conglomerate firms owns everything from insurance, reinsurance, Geico, uh, Fruit of the Loom, underwear, Seize Candies, you can name it, they own it. Um, but I think 30 or 35% of their value is their equity stake in Apple. So everybody owns Apple, and Apple has really become the market. And these other companies that I mentioned earlier, Facebook, Amazon, uh, Netflix, Google, Al Google's Alphabet, or Alphabet's Google, these are the stock market right now, and you own them one way or the other. I mean, some incredible stats. We saw the, the shakeup in the Dow Jones Industrial Average last week, which doesn't happen that often. And, and after all, the Dow 30, while it's venerable, it's not something that the majority of the industry benchmarks itself to. But you saw ExxonMobil, I mean, the most precocious child of Standard Oil, uh, which is down about 43% this year uh, amid the crisis in energy, uh, kicked out. It's now valued less than one of the players that was brought in, Salesforce.com. I mean, that's an incredible, incredible stat. Welcome to 2020. And, and this was happening anyway with ExxonMobil. Energy, the energy complex is not uh, that 
that much of a, a, a key component of the stock market as it used to be. It used to be everything, as I mentioned, in the 70s and 80s. These companies were the dominant companies in the world in terms of market cap, influence, revenue, et cetera. But obviously, with the drop in oil prices um, and this move over the last 10 to 15 years towards tech as everything has really changed the makeup of the way we look at markets, the way we look at the economy right now and productivity. You know, look at Salesforce. It is there to make you more productive with that CRM software. Uh, by definition, it's a very different type of business than drilling for oil 300 miles off in the Gulf of Mexico uh, or trying to find it in the Arctic with, these, with this heavy machinery. We're in a different era, and that's going to change the nature of capitalism and change investing. It already has. But they told us also we were in a different era in 1999 and 2000, right? And it didn't end well for people. It's a it's a blip when you look back on it now. Gosh, Nasdaq 5000. I mean, it's 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 a uh, we thought we wouldn't see that in a generation again. It was certainly painful. But then that new paradigm thinking was changed again when oil spiked up to $140 a barrel in 2008. My question to you is, what can an investor do if they say, I've been on the sidelines right now, I've missed this unbelievable rally since March, I don't want to be exposed. I wouldn't go out there if you gave me, say, $10,000 and buy all these tech stocks right now, but I have no choice to be invested in them because they now uh, throw their weight around the index so much. What can what can people do? Are there other mousetraps? Well, the SEC just changed the definition of what an accredited investor is. And an accredited investor, Robin, used to be somebody that had a significant amount of investable assets outside of their mortgage. They had a connection or they were connected to the financial services industry. They worked for a hedge fund or a bank, and they could invest in private equity. They could invest in hedge funds. They could invest in all these other exotic types of investments. So those are that threshold has now dropped to $100,000 to become accredited investor. And investors can participate, anyone that has that kind of money can participate in those types of investments. But those are even more obscure than the stock market, which is already pretty confusing for many people. So we're not suggesting that that can happen. I'm just making the point that the Securities and Exchange Commission is now opening the door to just about anybody to get into those investments. That said, we say at Investopedia, and I say it every day, even at market record highs where we are today and where we've been for weeks, that the best day to start investing was yesterday. The second best day is today. That doesn't mean you're going to go in and you're going to double your money in a year. Nobody should expect that to happen, although it did happen this year. That doesn't happen every year. But you have to be invested. And that doesn't mean you have to buy the favorites or load up on the tech stocks that everybody's talking about. You can build a reasonable diversified portfolio buying an index fund or buying ETFs in certain sectors that you believe in, whether that's utilities or technology or e-commerce or whatever it is. Diversify and dollar cost average your way in a little bit every week, a little bit every month. You're never going to pick the top. You're never going to pick the bottom. But if you stay in long term, history has shown, you'll get returns that are pretty decent and better than you're going to get anywhere else. I have a great uh, uh, article I pulled up in Barron's by an old Business Week co-worker of mine, Ben Levison. He goes, the stock market keeps rising no matter what. Time to call it a bubble. And he notices this. I mean, Zoom video communications. This is, you know, love it or hate it. It's all over our lives in, in pandemic 2020. It was up 41% on one day after reporting earnings that were more than twice what analysts had been expecting. Get this, Caleb. It's now worth $129 billion, more than IBM's $110 billion, even though Zoom had sales of... $664 million during its second quarter. IBM had sales of $18 billion. It also notes um, from the Citigroup Panic Euphoria Index, it's now at a reading of 1.13, almost three times uh, 0.41, which is the level that signifies euphoria. And uh, Levison notes that the stock market has been down 100% of the time after reaching that level of euphoria. I think we've just forgotten what fear is. You can call it a melt-up or whatever you want. The NASDAQ is up 33% this year. And anytime I, I notice that stocks start the day down or there's bad news, there are people seeming to rush in halfway through the day. Some of that is new individual investors with time on their hands and maybe some money to put to work. So we've seen a, definitely a rush of individual investors. I don't think they have as much of an influence on the stock market uh, as everyone makes them out to be. But thank God for statistics. Otherwise, business journalists would have nothing to talk about or compare anything to. Yes, these valuations for the Zooms of the world, the Teslas of the world are otherworldly. They're way beyond irrational exuberance, as Alan Greenspan liked to say. But a lot of investors have this fear of missing out. So they don't fear the market will fall. They just fear they're going to miss more upside 
side, whether that's institutional investors, and many of them, Robin, have been on the sidelines for the past several months, for the past since the, for the past eight months, actually, a lot of institutional money left the stock market, but enough money stayed in the big stocks, and a lot of retail investors came into the market to push these indexes higher. So there's plenty of momentum, and as Newton would say, a trend in motion will stay in motion until something knocks it off. Something eventually will knock it off, but right now the trend is their friend, and there's no reason for them not to keep investing. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Caleb Silver. He is an editor-in-chief of Investopedia. He used to be the head of business news at, at uh, CNN. Uh, I do have a CNN article in front of me. A uh, headline from the very end of August said, Users of Robinhood, Vanguard, E-Trade, and other online brokerages were reporting problems Monday. A huge day for retail investors hoping to get a piece of Apple or Tesla's newly split stock. Now, let me split that headline for you, Stir. I was taught that a stock split doesn't matter. Whether you give me a pie, you know, two halves of a pie or a whole pie, it's the same thing. Or you, you know, crush a bunch of Oreos into a cup or you give me those Oreos as three cookies— it's the same thing. What is it about individual investors that they get all lathered up about stock splits? In this case, with two of the most uh, uh, widely followed and exuberant stocks on the market, Tesla and Apple. It's all about price for these individual investors. When they see the price tag of Apple go from you know, 1800 to whatever it came down to the other day in the split, um, it just seems a lot cheaper and more accessible to them but they're not even thinking about the fundamentals or the fact that there's just more shares on the market just at a cheaper price. That doesn't, I don't think, cross many people's minds. And in the old days, a stock split wouldn't matter. Sometimes a stock split was a sign of weakness for some companies, but not right now, especially for Apple and Tesla, two of the, you know, the biggest giants in the stock market right now. They know there's retail demand for their stocks, so they're going to split it to make more available under the public markets at a cheaper price, and people just... But, they flock to it like bees to honey because it just seems cheaper and they can load up on as much Tesla as they can afford when it was inaccessible at a higher price. The company's the same. Fundamentals are the same. Management's the same. Nothing's changed except that price tag and the rest they really don't care about. So is that not the province of, of punters, as the Brits would put it? When you get amateurs involved in the market, it's kind of a sign of a dreggy, dreggy bull market? Absolutely. And you can go back to the tulips and you can go back to... Um, you know, the Bitcoins and cryptocurrencies of 2017 or the Pets.coms of 1999. You see this all the time. You know, fools rush in, as they say, but right now, nobody looks that foolish when the market keeps going up. When the tide comes out, as Warren Buffett likes to say, we'll see who's swimming with or without a bathing suit. Um, but right now, investors are just all in on these big names. And you can't fight that animal spirit when it takes over, especially when there's no place else to put your money and you have to put your money to work, whether you're a mutual fund manager or you're running your own portfolio or you're just playing around with something in the market, with some stocks in the market. Money needs a place to go, and right now it just keeps going to these stocks. Please do tell me about this Robin Hood phenomenon, this platform which individual investors and young people and millennials and Gen Zers love was valued at more than $11 billion. I can't for the life of me understand why stock trading is attractive at a time when all the other players have effectively offered free trading. Yeah. Uh, what is Robin Hood? What is its value proposition? And why is it so appealing and, and perilous if you're regulators like the SEC is looking at them? Sure. Robinhood was one of the original free trading apps, and it didn't just get here. It's been around, I think, I believe since 2012, 2013. So Robinhood's been in the game, in, rose out of the ashes of the financial crisis, free trading with the, the mantra of trying to democratize stock trading and investing for retail investors. And because it was free before all the other big brokers went free in the last couple of years. It did. It was able to build a pretty large customer base of folks that use it. Now, they do charge for some types of orders, uh, and they do get paid by order flow by routing your orders to other brokers to execute them. So there is a way for Robinhood to make money. But it has swollen from about a million users to north of 10 to 12 million in just the last year as individual investors have poured into it and opened accounts. Now, it is an easy way to access the market and to trade stocks, and I believe it was even offering some cryptocurrency at some point. So it's built this pretty good fan base, and a lot of users have used it. It's also had its issues when we've had these extremely volatile days like we had in March and April when the stock market fell 10% or rose 10% and people couldn't get into their accounts. Or 
days where we have these big stock splits uh, and people are having trouble accessing their accounts to make trades. So it's got that issue because it wasn't expecting that that amount of people. But you know, essentially, these companies, the Robinhoods, you know, is one of the leaders in this, have made its itself the platform for retail investors to begin their trading adventure for better or worse. And it's been good for some people, but it's been very bad for a lot of others. And the fact that there are a lot of people at home not having anything else to do, really. This is the closest thing to a rush that you could get. I mean, I've heard the Planet Money episodes on on people who suddenly, uh, the, the crazy stuff was happening. You had bankrupt companies whose shares were being bid up three, four hundred percent on these small platforms. I think people didn't understand what the uh, what their rights were as shareholders. Right. And Robinhood's job is to get as many people using the platform as possible and using it as often as possible. It's not to put up red lights when they're about to make a trade or, or, or open another account. Or you know, Their job in this world is to get more people using their product because it helps their valuation. And the more people that use it, the more valuable they become. They're already pretty valuable. So what investors and new investors especially need is that investing education, know what you own, know what you're doing before you start opening accounts and thinking you could pick the next stock better than the you know the people next to you or the people you see on CNBC and Bloomberg because it is very dangerous out there if you don't know what you're doing but that said if you actually spend the time to get educated as an investor you could have a, a lifetime of interesting opportunities to build money and accumulate wealth and compound your growth over time these platforms are not there to teach you that though they do offer some education you have to go find that before you get into this Caleb uh there are, there are riots in many places. There's a lot of social unrest. This was a summer of discontent. Uh, here in Richmond, you've seen it in Milwaukee, you've seen it in Kenosha, you've seen it in Portland. This is an election year. It's two months away from a major presidential election and many seats in the Senate up for grabs that you might see that switch. Why isn't the market pricing in uh, political or, let's say, you know, constitutional interruption volatility? After all, you know, if 2000 is any sort of analog, that that wasn't resolved for more than a month and you saw the market tank. But it doesn't seem to be something that investors are much talking about right now. Right. I think people used to put a lot of stock, metaphor intended, into who will be the president, the next president, and what that will mean for economic policy and therefore for industries in the stock market. I think people are resigned to the fact that no matter who is elected, Joe Biden or Donald Trump, um, it will be a split Congress, and it will be very hard to get anything done for the next several years, no matter what. So I think that's kind of out there. And the other thing is that you know, we are facing an enormous economic crisis. We're not through this pandemic yet. And I think that's first and foremost, or it should be, on voters' minds right now and safety, right? So they're thinking about how do we get through this pandemic uh, and, and who's going to give us the best leadership to do that? And they're not thinking about which, you know, is the, is the defense sector going to get more, uh, will be more favorable because if Donald Trump gets elected, he's shown that he wants to do more defense spending, or will hospitals and healthcare companies do better if Joe Biden's elected because he wants to bring Obamacare back? You see a little bit of movement there with institutions, but the general investing, um, you know, thought pattern is not really, I better allocate this way or that. We're, we're doing a survey of our readers right now in Investopedia asking that very same question. And most of them, and these are people across the world and, and of, of all kinds of political persuasions, they're not m making any adjustments to their portfolio in advance of the elections. Hmm. Let's go freestyle with you, Caleb Silver. You are, after all, an editor. Uh, tell me what we should be talking about. What should we be asking? What, what, what should I be asking you? Turn it around in the 10 minutes or so we have left with you. Well, we've talked a lot about the, the, this divorce between the economy and the stock market, which is very real and very palpable. Um, but when people go out and they say, you know, the stock market's doing great. We're up, uh, you know, the NASDAQ and the S&P are positive for the year. We're at record highs. Know this, that 90% that of the value of the stock market is controlled by 10% of investors. So we all benefit if we have 401ks, if we're still fortunate to have those, or we have retirement funds and we're invested in the stock market for sure. But the gains are going to the top. So income inequality is something we're pretty concerned about, uh, especially across uh, races. And it's not that we just became concerned about it, but because of the riot, you know, the, the protests in the streets and the unrest we're having in this country right now, it's, it's caused us to take a much harder look at the way we've covered investing in finance as a publisher for years. We're 22 years old, and we haven't done a good enough job at, at opening that up 
to really reflect the realities for people across races who experience the financial system, whether it's through the stock market, the banking or mortgage industry, or, or other means. So we're having to do a lot more work on that. And, and it's, it's, it's been a long time coming, but that's what we're focused on right now. Hmm. Uh, on income inequality, are there any remedies that, uh, you know, the stock market's going to do what the stock market does, and you see people like suddenly Elon Musk, uh, through fault of his own, but also fault of the tax system and and uh, uh, the way certain things are, are, are taxed and revenue is captured by Uncle Sam. He is now one of the top five wealthiest people on the planet. I've had uh, many guests uh, wonder what 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 can be done to kind of claw back paper gains. It doesn't really work like that. It's not like uh, Jeff Bezos is sitting on $190 billion of cash that's tied up in the value of his company. But I wonder at what point, and this goes back to 2008 and your conversation of income inequality, is you get more of a popular pull for for uh, revenue recapture or more of a, a progressive tax policy that you're seeing the haves have a lot more and the have-nots sinking. Right. So clawbacks are very difficult to do because they made that money because they own, you know, the, the lion's share of the equity in their companies. We're talking about Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, but others as well. It's hard to claw back those types of gains. But there could be, you know, higher taxes on, on capital gains. There could be a transa a financial transaction tax, which is something that Bernie Sanders was pitching when he was a candidate for president, where you're actually taxing each stock sale uh, by a, fra a few fractions of a penny. Now, given the amount of transactions we've had in the past six months, that would have brought a lot of money to the bottom line for the government. So you may see that happening, though probably not under a Trump administration if he's reelected. There are things like that you can do around the financial sector and the financial services sector, you know, to extract money from it. And you could raise taxes on the wealthy, but don't expect that to happen again if Donald Trump wins re-election. And even if Joe Biden wins uh, wins the presidency, it's going to be hard for him to raise taxes too, given the makeup of the likely makeup of Congress. Hmm. I do notice, Caleb, that gold is approaching, you know, the two thousand dollar level. Uh, and you've had people in the past saying that you need to be worried, you know, that the the, the blockchain bros and the Bitcoin bros two, three years ago were saying that this is precisely their nightmare scenario where you have a currency run amok and a kind of a fiat currency. And somebody like the Federal Reserve, as we talked about the debt earlier, could just keep printing and printing and printing it that its value is so far removed from underlying uh, uh, economic activity. That's why you need gold. That's why you need Bitcoin. That's why you need alternative readouts of safety, because there's so many distortions in the dollar and in U.S. debt. What say you about that? I, I'm surprised at how gold has performed this year, but not totally surprised, right? It is that flight to safety metal that people cling to in uncertain times, and we've been in a long period of uncertainty. So gold has taken on a whole new uh, shine this year, to use a metaphor. But also, if you look inside the gold ETFs, the exchange-traded funds that hold gold, GLD namely, you're seeing this unprecedented demand for people that just want to own the asset in some shape or form. And so it is the safety play while equity markets have also taken off. But I think investors, especially gold investors, know equity markets are really you know, being are, are being propelled by these 15 to 20 companies that are taking it higher. And when that falls apart, gold might be the only thing to hold on to as those assets fall, if they do. So that's definitely happening. Uh, as far as Bitcoin, I don't think it's had the kind of momentum that I would have expected uh, like we saw in 2017 post-election where there was so much uncertainty and un and people didn't believe, a lot of people that believed in, in Bitcoin didn't believe in the fiat system. I would have thought it would have done better by now, but the appetite among the general public is not what it was. Uh, they're more fascinated with Zoom. They're more fascinated with Tesla um, and these companies than they are with cryptocurrencies right now that still seem pretty arcane and mysterious and hard to explain just as they were when they came on the scene four or five years ago. So suppose you're you're sitting on the sidelines of all of this and you've been on your best behavior. You haven't extended yourself in terms of debt or mortgage that you couldn't afford. Uh, you're living within your means and you're being punished now. The Fed, I think this is called financial repression, when the Fed keeps interest rates at, at painfully low levels to kind of smoke you out of that safety to go out and take risks or ideally to hire people. What are your options for safety right now? It's not easy for an individual to buy gold. Bitcoin is a bit opaque. Uh, savings accounts are offering you nothing. It seems like uh, the saver has been truly forgotten, not just uh, over the past six months, but you could look back over the past 20 years. The majority of those years, you had the Federal Reserve at emergency interest rate policy. 
Right. Savers have been punished through this, but it's really been a 20-year trend of uh, basically interest rates coming down you know, from their highs back in the 70s. Uh, so it's not like it just happened, but it is becoming more acute. And as the population ages, especially that baby boomer population, they're probably feeling it. If they've been fixed income investors, have been holding bonds, prices have been good, but yields, as you know, are very low right now. So if you've been good and you've been holding on to cash, know that you're probably going to need not three months of emergency cash if things get worse, but six to nine months. So make sure you have savings, even though you're getting nothing on it. But as I said earlier, there's no reason to not invest just because you fear market highs. That happens all the time. If you used, if you operated by that principle for the last 12 years, you missed out on one of the greatest rallies of all time. Uh, if you operated under that principle three months ago, you still missed out on one of the great rallies of all time, even as markets were recovering. So we can't predict what markets are going to do. We know that they are overcooked right now. We know that valuations are high. It's not the first time it's happened, and it won't be the last. Markets eventually return to the mean. But the mean... Robin, is that 5 to 7% growth every year? And that's where Jack Bogle and the Bogleheads have it right. The market does what the market does over time. If we end up in a double-dip recession or a depression, that could change. But so far, the economy is not speaking to the stock market, or should I say the stock market's not speaking to the economy. So you would have been you know, foolish to, to, to have not invested because you feared what was going to happen. Invest, be diversified. Contribute a little bit every month, rebalance every quarter to make sure you're not overexposed in one area. Over time, you're going to do fine. You know, finally, a wild card for you in the two minutes we have left with you, Caleb Silver of Investopedia. What happens if the vaccine hits? Like the morning after, there's going to be an enormous rally in the stock market. You're going to see maybe bond yields move around at some point be it in 2021 or 2024, 2025, the Federal Reserve is going to have to mop up all of the cash sloshing out there. And there is an indication of inflation. What does a person do right now to prepare for it, even though it's in the theoretical? It is in the theoretical, and the, and the Fed will have need a very big mop because there is a lot of spillage, as we should say. But um, that's a problem for another day, and not to punt it, but... They've already said in the past a couple of weeks, in the past week, that they're going to be much more uh, flexible when it comes to inflation, and they're not going to make, they're not going to raise interest rates if they feel that inflation is cooking a little bit higher. They want to keep it in this rough average right now, which is a very different policy stance from the Federal Reserve, and that just means interest rates are going to stay low for a while, and a rise in prices is not something they fear as much as they used to. What they're really scared about is a long period of unemployment for U.S. workers, and that makes a ton of sense because right now we have, you know, 13 million people unemployed, probably a lot more of folks that aren't connected to the workforce that we don't even hear about. And if those folks remain unemployed, uh, that will ultimately affect consumer spending. And consumer spending is 70% of GDP. You hurt that, and then the economy is really going to have to reckon with a very long, long downturn. Caleb Silver, Editor-in-Chief of Investopedia, previously Director of Business News at CNN and Executive Producer of CNN Money. Sir, I love having you on this show, and you should know that you are always welcome to come back on. I love being on this show, Robin. Thanks for having me, and uh, you stay safe down there in the RVA. What a fantastic city. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. This show airs on NPR One. I love that app. Spotify and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. We even have a dedicated page on LinkedIn. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. Next week.